Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. I realize that right now the minds of many of the pastors, church leaders, and fathers who subscribe to the podcast are focused on the pressures of wokeness these days that are impacting our families, be it the LGBTQ agenda or the critical race theory agendas, which are shaping the rising generation. In September, I will be doing a series to help guide our kids away from these misguided worldviews and into the foundations of the biblical worldview. Yet, as vital as such equipping is for today's kids, today's topic of spiritual gifts may be more important. The reason is that Paul teaches that using our spiritual gifts is central to growing up into Christ, into the strength we all need, when we venture into the world to make a difference for Christ in a post-Christian era. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 39 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. The Book of Romans is considered the greatest theological tome ever written. In it, Paul devotes the first 11 chapters to explaining God's mercy in his plan to save us by grace alone through faith in Christ. At the beginning of chapter 12 are three hinge principles on the doorway through which we leave the doctrine room and enter the life application room, chapters 12 through 16 of Romans. You're probably familiar with the first two principles— First, from Romans 12:1, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, proper worship. The most foundational principle of everyday spiritual growth is that we offer ourselves to God. That's our motivation on the altar in response to His mercy for us. The second hinge principle comes in the next verse, Romans 12:2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The second most important principle of spiritual growth is that we are set free from the former patterns of our sin in our lives by Scripture renewing our minds. But the third hinge principle given in Romans 12, 3 through 8 might not be as recognizable, and that is using our spiritual gifts. Paul writes, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The third most important principle of spiritual growth is that we use our spiritual gifts and be in community where we are built up by others' spiritual gifts. Here's one of my favorite illustrations of the way spiritual gifts work. Seven family members, each with a different one of the motivational gifts we're studying in Romans 12, are sitting around the dinner table when the eighth person, the youngest member of the family, drops the dessert while walking to the table. Here is what you could expect those with different gifts to say. First, that's what happens when you're not careful. That would be the prophet, motivation to convict of sin. Oh, let me help you clean it up. 
That would be the server, motivation to meet a practical need. The reason it fell was that it was too heavy on the one side. Believe it or not, that would be the biblical understanding of teacher, motivated by truth and accuracy in research. Next time, don't try to bring everything at once. Make two trips. That would be the exhorter who is motivated to learn character from past experience and mistakes and then correct it for the future. I'll be happy to buy a new dessert. Well, that, of course, would be the giver motivated to provide financial resources to meet the need. Jack, would you get the mop? Lauren, please help pick up the dessert. Courtney, could you help me fix another dessert? That, of course, would be the leader motivated to build and coordinate a team to get the job done. Don't feel badly. It could have happened to anyone. That, of course, would be mercy, motivated by the desire to alleviate the pain of embarrassment. Christian psychologists tell us that every human needs to have a sense of value and a sense of belonging. And Paul's words here meet both of these needs. We are given a valuable spiritual gift that God commands us to use and told that, quote, each member of the body belongs to all the others. So let's look at these gifts. The first one we're going to study is prophet or prophesying, prophetes, which means to speak forth openly. There are three word pictures that describe the way this spiritual gift functions, as we saw last week. The first is mouthpiece. And we also saw last week that this gift of being a prophet is used in a number of different ways in Scripture. It is a job description for someone like Elijah in the Old Testament or Silas in the New Testament. It is secondly used for prophets in that with that job description whose words actually become Scripture, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both of these, both lowercase prophets and what you might call uppercase prophets, often had supernatural insight from God about the future. They were the mouthpiece of God. The similar gift of prophet here in Romans 12 does not bring fresh revelation directly from God. The scriptures have been fully completed now, but those with this gift are very committed to the authority of God's word. Their attitude is, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. Here are some of the specific characteristics that match this aspect of prophets. A strong conviction that the Bible is God's inerrant word. A strong commitment to studying and obeying God's word in his or her own everyday life. Passionate commitment to God's word as the authority for everything done in the church. The second word picture of a prophet is that of a prosecuting attorney. As we saw last week, prophets like Elijah had supernatural messages from God about the future. But these predictions were not some kind of fortune teller-like ability. Their prophecies were always linked to the consequences God brought for Israel's sin. When Moses brought down God's covenant law from Mount Sinai, the people vowed to keep the law. But to provide a little extra motivation, very clear sanctions were attached to this covenant made between God and the Israelites. Here are a few samples mentioning the blessings, that is sanctions, promised by God for obedience and the punishments promised for disobedience from Deuteronomy 28. 
if you fully obey the Lord your God, the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on the earth." That's just a few summary portions of this whole chapter of Deuteronomy 28. So here are some characteristics of this gift of prophet that match the Old Testament prophet who was the prosecuting attorney. We see first that such a person is quick to detect and point out sin. Notice Peter's words, who's an example of a prophet, as best we can tell, explaining Pentecost. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, there's a lot that Peter could say about what happened, but Peter wants to focus on their sin. He wants to see repentance. Second characteristic of a prophet that is like a prosecuting attorney is the tendency to be direct or blunt in their words. Here are Peter's words to the entire priestly family in explaining the healing of a lame man. He says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Next, a prophet sees partial obedience as disobedience and thus focuses on the empty half of the glass. His focus is on how we have fallen short of God's moral standards. The third word picture for a prophet is the word oncologist. A passage like Deuteronomy 28 that we just saw parts of explains why the prophet understands the devastation of the cancer of sin and insists on surgery, repentance, that gets all of the cancerous cells removed from our sinful hearts. The prophet gift of Romans 12 isn't necessarily a preacher. The word preacher is caruso. That's a position. That's a job. But the inner motivation of any one of the members of the body of Christ who has the gift of being a prophet is to uphold the holiness of God, to hate evil, to warn of its consequences, to call the sinful to repent, and to warn of God's judgment to come. Here are characteristics that match this aspect of a prophet oncologist. They are very discerning of deception, dishonesty, and wrong motives. In Acts 5, 1 through 3, we read, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? The next characteristic of a prophet is that they grieve inwardly over sin, weeping when God's holy standards are violated. Prophets also demand a high standard of themselves. You know, all of Jesus' disciples abandoned Jesus and fled when he was arrested in the garden, except one. Peter alone followed Jesus to the courtyard. Yet when Peter finally denied him and the cock crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter was more loyal than the others. Yet there is no record of any other disciple weeping bitterly over his disloyalty. And it would appear that only Peter, whose sin was so grievous to him that he needed to know he was restored to his relationship with Christ, who was assured three times by Jesus, I know that you love me. I still want you to feed my sheep. The last characteristic we want to mention is that a prophet seems to be very sensitive to whether someone has repented or not. It was Peter, remember, sensing the lack of repentance in one who repeatedly sinned and kept asking forgiveness, who asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So nine characteristics of this gift based on those three word pictures. So which of Christ's perfections does the prophet show? Christ's holiness. Of all the New Testament writers, it is Peter who writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Furthermore, the prophet teaches us to abhor evil, Romans twelve nine, and to mourn, as Jesus did in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as the second beatitude calls us to do, over the way that sin destroys everywhere it goes. So what are the vulnerabilities of the prophet? First, their hostility towards sin can make them combative towards secular culture and those within the culture holding anti-biblical views. Instead of attacking current culture, Christians need to winsomely win over culture shapers, and the lost to Christ. Those holding ungodly views are not the enemy. They are being held captive by the enemy, sin. We are not called to separate from and attack the ungodliness of the culture, but to shape the culture and love the lost. Second, their hostility towards sin can cause them to be moralistic, focused mostly upon stopping their children from sinning instead of helping them love Jesus. Next, their hostility towards sin can lead them to focus on outward sins, as the Pharisees did, instead of inner sin, like our failure to love God and others as we should. Next, their black and white nature can cause them to elevate their application of a biblical truth a parent is responsible to train his kids, so I'm homeschooling my kids, to the level of Scripture itself, making their application absolute for everyone. All godly parents will homeschool their kids. Next, because they see the empty 5% of the obedience class, they do not grasp the need every human has for encouragement, for getting the first 95% right. (laughs) 
Finally, the conscience of sinful men attacks the messenger, the prophet, who makes them feel guilty. A prophet's proclamation of moral absolutes is true love for them. But when they verbalize such statements, they are called intolerant. Those with this gift often feel very alone, like the prophet Elijah after his confrontation on Mount Carmel. Next, a little more detail than last week on the gift of teaching, didaskalos. As we mentioned last week, teaching is an office or position in the church that is joined with the office of elder, who is also called the overseer and pastor. But the Romans 12 gifts do not refer to offices, but to gifts given to all believers and motivated by God's inward working of grace. The didaskalos mentioned there is motivated to make sure what is claimed to be biblical teaching is. Just as Microsoft Office's word has spell check, those with this gift are the doctrine check for the church. In fact, the didaskalos' teaching is called didaskalia, which is translated, as we mentioned last week, doctrine. The didaskalos' focus is always on the accuracy of what is being taught. Again, we touched on this a little last week. We saw that Luke's introduction to his gospel demonstrates numerous aspects of this gift. In pursuit of the facts of the gospel stories, Luke relies on eyewitness testimony, faithfully given, and the accurate transferring of this data. He is devoted to writing an orderly account so that the readers may have clarity about the events that took place and have, in his words, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's kind of ironic that those who have this spiritual gift are often boring teachers because their motivation is to ensure accuracy, whereas the exhorter has one eye on the biblical text and the other eye on human beings, how to apply this truth in everyday life. The didaskalos has one eye on what has been taught and the other eye on Christian orthodoxy what the Christian confessions and great scholars of the past have defined as biblical doctrine. Here are four reasons why this gift is absolutely vital to having a healthy church today. First, because the foundation of the Christian faith is truth. We reject the cultural idea that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as your faith is sincere. If you don't have truth, you don't have Christianity. Second, because Paul tells us in Romans 1 that at the heart of our human fallenness is a desire to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every one of us has a darkened mind that distorts truth into a form we want that truth to take. Third, because Satan, heretics, and immature believers take Scripture out of context, arriving at all kinds of false conclusions. The didaskalos is devoted to understanding the context in which biblical statements are made. And the fourth reason why this gift is absolutely essential for the church is because scripture texts that appear on the surface to contradict don't. The didaskalos knows that the great confessions of the faith are rooted in the belief that scripture is inerrant. Those confessions simply position truths of the scriptures on the same topic beside each other to give us the rails within which the truth lies. For example, God is sovereign, but man is morally responsible and not God for man's sinful heart. 2 Timothy 1, 13-14 gives us helpful insights about this gift of teaching. Paul writes, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching 
with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So here are the characteristics. One with the gift of teaching tends to validate the accuracy of what is taught based on the teaching of previous teachers, that is, doctrinal creeds. So Paul here tells Timothy, what you heard from me keep as the pattern for sound teaching. One with this gift often knows who the great scholars have been, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, and historical confessional statements like the Council of Nicaea and the Westminster Confession. Next characteristic, in verse 13, Paul uses the word pattern, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. The word could be translated outline. The second characteristic of those with this gift is that their hearts love the systematizing of truth. Like engineers in the secular world, their hearts just love the way God's truths fit together. In verse 13, Paul also uses the word sound. Those with this gift are motivated to ensure that the church of Jesus Christ is doctrinally sound in its preaching, teaching, counseling, and so forth. The fourth characteristic comes from verse 14. The didaskalos is motivated to guard the truth of God. Verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. It is a fact of church history that false teachers and heretics have routinely corrupted the church, robbing it of precious truths. Think, for instance, of the Church of the Indulgences before Luther's 95 Theses were posted and the revival of Christianity and Europe through the rediscovering of the doctrine of justification through faith alone. So, what are the vulnerabilities of the teacher? First, applying Scripture is hard for him, since his focus is not naturally application, but accuracy. Those with this gift often have difficulty getting their churches to grow, because application is what everyday believers want, usually. Second, his teaching may not be very motivating for many. He loves truth and doctrine and doesn't understand why others don't get excited about it like he is. (laughs) Third, educators and those with the gift of exhortation understand that adults often learn best through discussion, but those with this gift dislike shared ignorance, their term for that. They want classes led by scholarly teachers. Fourth, agreeing on all the minor elements of doctrine can be elevated to a legalistic extreme that hinders working with other believers. Fifth, they tend to have trouble seeing the value of the other spiritual gifts. The biblical truth, for example, is that the task of the church is making disciples and that we grow up into Christ the head through speaking the truth to one another in small groups. But those with this gift seem to think that all that matters is sound doctrine. Well, hopefully when you eat dinner this evening, no one will drop the dessert But I'm hoping that you are finding this brief journey into studying these gifts inspiring. God is glorified by variety, and he has given us a special gift to benefit the rest of the body of Christ that some of us haven't even unwrapped yet. To summarize this episode, the gift described in Romans 12.6 as prophecy has nothing to do with foretelling the future. It is an inward passion for the holiness of God, a hatred of evil, 
and an ability to expose it and bring others to repent. Unfortunately, though, this God-given hostility to sin and grief over the way sin destroys human life can lead those with this gift to be hostile towards secular culture in general and those proponents of ungodly ideologies rather than compassionate toward the lost who espouse them and winsome in persuading others of the superiority of the biblical worldview. The gift of teaching can also refer to an office or job in the church, but in Romans 12 it refers to the passionate heart and clear thinking that God grants some to protect the church from doctrinal compromise, since Satan, heretical teachers, and our own hearts urge us to reframe biblical truth to our own liking. For further prayerful thought, number one, was there someone in whom you saw the characteristics of a prophet or a teacher in this episode? See your show notes for additional questions. This week's past podcast series is entitled Surrounding Our Loved Ones with the Belt of Truth. Again, see the podcast show notes for more information. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we continue our series, Helping Our Loved Ones Flourish Using Their Spiritual Gifts, by looking at the three gifts God gave us to get the job done, leading, serving, and giving. I think it will help you immensely to understand these gifts if any one of your kids or wife has one of them. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out. <laughs>